Hello and welcome to a few thoughts on one of Christianity's more interesting subversions. I want to start by reflecting on the lyrics of a song called Lovers in a Dangerous Time, which was written by Bruce Coburn back in 1983. That was a while ago. I was only two when he wrote the song. Coburn, I think, is one of the finest lyricists um, in history. And in this song, Lovers in, in a Dangerous Time, he tells us that life tends to fly by so quickly that it's difficult to find the strength just to stop and open our eyes. Life, he tells us, is also filled with contradictions. One moment you're waiting for the sky to fall, and the next moment you find yourself dazzled by the beauty that surrounds you. And this constant dance uh, exists between terror and wonder and shock and awe and Sometimes it's just unbearable. And then later, in the same song, Coburn tells us that we've got to just kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. Because, I guess, darkness is part of the human experience, and there are ways to let it linger longer than it needs to. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, uh, maybe because quite a few people that I know have been having a bit of a rough time. Um, we've just got to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. It's poetry, of course, and so it's as open to us as we will let it be, or it's as open to us as we will let ourselves be to it. But to explore the idea, this idea of kicking at the night until we find the dawn, I, I want to look at two more ways of looking at the world. In my last podcast, I offered... a uh, a way of interpreting the two ways offered in the ancient text called the Didache. And along those lines, I thought to offer a reflection on two other ways of considering life. And I'm going to call these the way of the banquet, and then there's the way of the Eucharist. Banquet and Eucharist obviously refer to two different ways of eating, and I'm going to use them as a metaphor for two entirely different frameworks for living. And hopefully soon enough you'll see what I mean when I split these things up. We are, among many other things, animals who eat. Okay, all animals eat, I know that, but, but human beings eat in a unique way. Food for us is always imbued with meaning. This is a very strange thing. We have to eat, but we don't have to eat McDonald's or a sandwich or a schnitzel or, or a curry. So food has cultural meaning, which is another way of saying that food, what we eat, talks to us about community. It reflects how we fit into society. Eating is also connected to family and friends. Eating alone is generally less fun than eating with others that we love and care about. The fact that we get hungry is a profound way of understanding a lot of other aspects of our own humanity. It's therefore no surprise that one of the earliest myths about humanity, which is a story we find in the earlier part of the book of Genesis, is a story about how Adam and Eve go out and eat fruit that their creator tells them not to eat. They have an expectation of that fruit that the serpent in the garden tempts them with, they, they think it'll make them better, it'll fulfill them, it'll make them whole. But we know the story, it wrecks everything. Adam and Eve were fine before they ate the fruit, but totally miserable and homeless after eating the fruit. What was alluring to look at left a bad taste in their mouths. I think this is a wonderful parable uh, because it reflects 
so much about how life seems to be working, or at least seems to be understood by so many people today. And this is what I'm calling the way of the banquet. The banquet is the promise of more, of abundance. It it promises fulfillment. It's kind of like the Hollywood myth of the one, you know, the, the one that you will find, or the cultural myth of the perfect job or the perfect set of circumstances. The banquet is always there. It's laid out before us. But when we finally get to eat from the table, it's not uncommon to feel like it's just not as great as it was made out to be. Think of the way that happiness is generally understood. And someone who criticizes this view is is the very funny Sean Aker, uh, whose book The Happiness Advantage is, is a really fascinating read. There are some problems ideologically with it, but... The happiness advantage is great fun, so you should check it out if, you, if you're interested in happiness psychology. But what's interesting is, generally happiness is understood as the goal, but it's a goal that is usually placed on the other side of another goal. So you'll hear people say things like, when I change jobs, I'm going to be so much happier, or when I break up with so-and-so, my life will be good. Uh, the promise of the banquet is always a of a banquet on the other side of some kind of an obstacle. When the obstacle has been overcome or removed, then, or at least we think this, then we will be happier, then we'll be okay. What we don't always realize is that the obstacle itself is often the very thing that imbues the banquet, the final goal, with its sacred allure. Uh, The obstacle is, is the thing that makes us want the the final goal more it's a weird sort of thing there's there's a lot more to this from a psychological perspective but i when i think of this i think of my daughter who is still a toddler and, and how she tends to be more fascinated by the stuff she's not allowed to play with than by the stuff that she is allowed to play with or i think about how people often most admire the things that seem out of reach the dream seems more appealing than the reality perhaps precisely because it it is unattainable. And in the rare instance that the dream becomes reality, what often happens is that it, it disintegrates. It's, its sacred allure just disappears. We get to the banquet and we discover that the food isn't as great as it appeared to be. We end up hungry even though we've been fed. This reminds me of another great myth. It's, it's a myth of a guy named Erisichthon, which is such a cool name, uh, but not one that you necessarily want to give to your kid. Erisichthon is the, the king of Thessaly, and for reasons that aren't always that clear, he orders that all the trees in the sacred grove of Demeter should be cut down. One particularly large tree is an oak tree, and it's covered in wreaths that are symbolic of every prayer that Demeter has granted. And even though he knows this, Erisichthon decides to cut the tree down. In the process of doing this, Erisichthon kills a dryad nymph who is trying to stop Erisichthon from doing this, from from chopping down this tree. And as this nymph is dying, she curses Erisichthon. Demeter, of course, hears this curse, and because she happens to be offended by this king's defiance, she places in him the spirit of unrelenting and insatiable hunger. This means that food 
is basically it starts to operate a little bit like wood on a fire. The more Erisichthon eats, the hungrier he gets. And while this is okay at first, because he's the king and he's got a lot of money and he can afford to to keep on buying food, later it becomes a huge problem. He starts to to run out of money. Uh, So he, he keeps on selling his possessions to keep on eating, but he is never satisfied. Eventually, in a total frenzy, he starts to hack off his own limbs and begin to eat himself, which is, as you can imagine, not the healthiest thing that he could choose. And at some point, he, he dies. He, he dies because he's, he's so desperate to be filled. The banquet, this is the way of the banquet. It's a promise, but it doesn't fulfill it's generally the reason that we don't face the simplest fact, which is that we are hungry. The banquet tries to address the hunger without understanding it. It tries to cure the disease without understanding what the disease even is. A great deal of consumer culture works on this basic logical structure. There is a problem and it needs to be solved. There's a lack or sense of lack, and it needs to be filled. And there is a disease, and it needs to be cured. This is how the average infomercial is structured. Everything in your life is terrible until you get this blender, or juicer, or that vacuum cleaner, or that exercise machine. And for a lot of people, Christianity fits into this exact same structure. It's It's posited as kind of like the best form of this, but... It it still fits into the same structure. Sin needs to be met with forgiveness, lack with fulfillment, loss with being found. But the real problem, I think, is that people don't understand the problem. That's not what Christianity is doing at all. It does address that sometimes, in some way, but, but I think what it's doing is it's challenging this way of thinking. It's it's not just another ideological support for American capitalism or the best manifestation of it. But what happens if Christianity is not the solution to all of your problems, but rather the problem to all of your flimsy solutions? Maybe we could see it like that. I think of something that the great sage Anthony de Mello says in his book Awareness. It's that awareness, by the way, it's, it's an amazing book. It's the kind of book that will both irritate and inspire you. Um, but Anthony DeMello says there, he says that maybe the better way to go is to just understand. Don't judge, don't jump to conclusions or solutions, just understand. When you understand things, then genuine change is possible. Because what happens is your perspective, your whole posture towards life actually changes. When you kick at the darkness, knowing full well that the darkness is real, then you have a chance of breaking through to daylight. In fact, then you have a chance of actually finding daylight. So this brings me to the second way, which is the way of the Eucharist. The Eucharist is this meal that was instituted by Jesus just before he was taken away by the Roman authorities to be crucified for rebelling against religion and empire. And it's very significant. That's basically what he was doing. He was he was taking a stance that was very different from the stances of religion and empire. He was challenging 
the structure of the banquet, if, if you want to see it like that. And it is a remarkable meal, this Eucharist meal, to partake of because it is essentially not a meal that will fill you. You take a small piece of bread and you have a sip of wine. And if you're anything like me, you end up feeling a little bit hungry and thirsty afterwards. You get enough of a taste of something, but in a way that you kind of feel like you need more. The way I see it, this this meal is not there to satisfy hunger, but to remind us of it. And symbolically too, it, it is about identifying with the body of a crucified victim and his blood spilled by human violence. Which means that the Eucharist is about accepting not only our hunger, but our own deaths too. It, it places hunger and death at the center of our postures towards the world. Which may, this may sound really morose, but I think this kind of, there's, there's also something joyful about it because it's, it's about accepting the darkness in order to, to find light within it. And I, I don't know if you see this, but I think it's really amazing. The banquet says, come here and be filled. The Eucharist says, come here and be empty because that's really what you are. The one promises a kind of perfection, the other acknowledges the very real place of imperfection in us. The banquet refuses to own up to our failings and flaws and lacks, but the Eucharist tells us that what we are, are failures, flawed people, and people who just lack so much. In a way, the Eucharist is just there to remind us to be honest with ourselves and and to own up to our real experiences of life. Think of therapy and why talking through your issues helps. Nothing in in reality really changes, but simply acknowledging where you are and what you're going through makes a difference. Think of grieving and how not facing the grief is is just a way to make you sick and miserable. The the lesson of the Eucharist or one of the lessons is that we are better off when we don't just rush off to embrace a poor answer to a difficult question, we are happier when we, are, when we know we're unhappy. Oddly enough, we're more fulfilled when we acknowledge that we're not going to ever be fulfilled, at least not in the way that we expect to be. I think of the counterintuitive advice given by the great French philosopher Simone Weil. She says that we need to be willing to be nourished by our hunger. It's a fascinating paradox. To be nourished by our hunger sounds ludicrous until you you realize the wisdom in it. We generally like quick fixes. We we like the noise that'll block out self-doubt or negativity or any sense of meaninglessness. But when we pay attention to our hunger, when we're not afraid to let it linger a little bit longer than, than we'd like, we may just discover something in the hunger that changes the entire way we look at things. So, having said this, just allow me to get a little bit mystical When people think of God, they often think of the God-shaped hole. It's Pascal's idea, I think. How we all have this God-shaped hole in us that can only be filled by God. My own experience has been different. I don't think that the God-shaped hole ever goes away unless you fill it with what is not God. You can stay busy, of course, or you can keep uh, life's noise levels up. And that way you can drown out your hunger, your longing. 
You can keep on diving into work or into relationships or church or or the avoidance of church, if that's your thing, or community or any number of other things. But it is only when you are silent, quiet, unperturbed by by whatever the void is that you're trying to, to fill, that you will see that maybe God is in the hunger, or maybe God is like your own hunger. Maybe God is the hunger for God. You take the bread and the wine, and you know you won't be filled by this. You're hungry, you're going to die. Death doesn't have the last word, but it will have a say. And you know this. And then, just maybe, you will know and experience the grace of what it means to be truly whole. To be whole is to be okay with not being okay. I know this may sound like a weird way of seeing things and maybe it leaves you a little dissatisfied, a little perplexed or confused. But maybe that's what I'm getting at. Maybe um, that is a better reflection of life than just giving you some kind of easy answer. Because my whole life I found that the answer to my questions tends to arrive in the midst of the questions, not just from somewhere else. And sometimes the answer isn't an answer but is another question. And as hard as it is to sometimes accept, it's as if the daylight bleeds through the darkness from somehow from within it. It's difficult to articulate this stuff. I I feel like I'm fumbling a little. Um, But this is something that Paul Tillich gets a bit at uh, in his book, Shaking the Foundations, which I'm going to read from as I close. Um, It's it's a longish passage, but I think it's it's just so brilliant and it's mind-blowing and Maybe this helps to convey some of the ideas I've been trying to get at better than what I've been able to do. So here goes. He writes, Grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when we feel that our separation is deeper than usual because we have violated another life, a life which we loved, or from which we are estranged. It strikes us when our disgust for our own being, our, or, or our indifference, our weakness, our hostility, and our lack of direction and composure have become intolerable to us. It strikes us when, year after year, the longed-for perfection of life does not appear, when the old compulsions reign within us, as they have for decades, when despair destroys all joy and courage. Sometimes at that moment, a wave of light breaks into our darkness, and it's as though a voice was saying, You are accepted. You are accepted, accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you do not know. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything, do not perform anything, do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens to us, we experience grace. After such an experience, we may not be better than before and we may not believe more than before, but everything is transformed. In that moment, grace conquers sin and reconciliation bridges the gulf of estrangement and nothing is demanded of this experience, no religious or moral or intellectual presupposition, nothing but acceptance. 
In the light of this grace, we perceive the power of grace in our relation to others and to ourselves. We experience the grace of being able to look frankly into the eyes of another, the miraculous grace of reunion of life with life. We experience the grace of understanding each other's words. We understand not merely the literal meaning of the words, but also that which lies behind them, even when they are harsh or angry. For even then, there is a longing to break through the walls of separation. We experience the grace of being able to accept the life of another, even if it be hostile and harmful to us. For through grace, we know that it belongs to the same ground to which we belong, and by which we have been accepted. We experience the grace which is able to overcome the tragic separation of the sexes, of the generations, of the nations, of the races, and even the utter strangeness between man and nature. Sometimes grace appears in all these separations to reunite us with those to whom we belong, for life belongs to life. And in the light of this grace we perceive the power of grace in relation to ourselves. We experience moments in which we accept ourselves because we feel that we have been accepted by that which is greater than we.